Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon on this Mitch Marathon Month. Well, okay, not Marathon Month. It is the Holiday Marathon. Uh, knowing that a lot of people stay home for the holiday breaks, I will be putting up an episode almost every day, or certainly as much as possible, um, on the last episode with uh, Mark Starace of uh, Crocus. Had a little rant about uh, how some people don't see bands or we don't appreciate bands in North America from the European countries and stuff. And I, and I wanted to, to mention, because I forgot to, to, to sort of put it in there, but Canadian bands also seem to have this same fate where there's a lot of bands here that do great and they've been around for 30, 40 years. And yet uh, overseas or in the States, people don't really know about them. Uh, case in point, last night I saw Glass Tiger just outside of Montreal in a room that holds uh, 712 people at capacity, and it was sold out. I'm assuming that if uh, Glass Tiger went over to uh, London or to Tokyo or to, uh, well, actually, Tokyo, probably everybody supports bands. To Tokyo loves supporting bands, but if, you know, if I sent them over to Texas, probably wouldn't be a sold-out show. And so we, we've got a lot of bands here. Honeymoon Suite, Killer Dwarves, Helix, Learen. Uh, and so many more that just, you know, and even Gowan as a solo artist and Brian Adams in the beginning and Celine Dion way, way back in the beginning, you know, they had these 5, 10, 15 year careers here uh, before they ever exploded anywhere on the scene. Uh, there's a there's a French lady, a French artist, a French singer, I should say, uh, here in Quebec named Marie May. And she just played the Bell Center for two sold out shows. So two times 18,000. And as you're listening to this, you're going, Mary who? Right? And yet, over here, it's a great hysteria, great uh, great love. By the way, speaking of hysteria, I've got an interview with uh, Joe Elliott coming up uh, very shortly. Uh, but before that, here is uh, my interview with uh, David Glenn Isley. Uh, David Glenn has sang with uh, the best over the years. He's got the uh, SpongeBob song, which everybody loves. And uh, on this conversation, it is... Live co-hosted by guitarist Bob Kulik. Now, uh, Bob starts the interview and you, you, you hear him uh, chime in and, and chit-chat and talk. And then he sits back and he just lets me and David uh, do what we want to do. And of course, if any of you are, are KISS fans and you're sitting here for some kind of great controversy that Bob is going to say something and, oh, he... Uh, no, in fact, this was a, uh, this was a David Glenn Isley uh, interview Bob was kind enough or courteous enough to uh, to set it up, and uh, so he 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 is here. You do hear him chime in, but if you're expecting uh, any kind of controversy in regards to his brother or the band, uh, Kiss, or what, you know, uh, anyway, uh, without further ado, here is uh, the one, uh, the only, David Glenn Isley. For his return appearance, it is the one, the only... Bob Kulik, joined by David Glenn Isley. Together, combined, they have given us a sweet victory. The SpongeBob well, SquarePants song. Uh, bonjour, monsieur. Hello. How are you? Good morning, Mitch. Yes. So let's, good morning, Mitch. How are you? Yes, I'm good. So let, let us uh, identify the voices for uh, the fans listening. So I'll go to you, Dave. Uh, Dave, we have never actually done an interview. We've spoken before, but... Uh, yeah. Dave, just say hello to everybody so that they can sort of get the voice as as we go out on on this podcast platform. 
But I say, uh, say this is uh, David Glenn Isley. No, hey everybody, this is David Glenn Isley, and I'm speaking to Mitch Lafon with my buddy Bob Kielik. Yes, and Bob, you and I have spoken before. The fans have been listening to it. There was great uh, interest in in the Kiss world for our last interview, but uh, this time we're going to focus on. Bob Kulik, we're going to focus on David Glenn, we're going to focus on the new album, we're going to focus on Spongebob, Graham Bonnet. So let us talk about Sweet Victory. Um, what's the update on this, Bob? You, you, you now own the song, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Well, to avoid confusion, I think a business conversation about what happened is not necessary. What's most important about this is that the song lives again standing on its own two feet, except this time, it's not a sponge singing it. It's my great friend and super talented uh, artist, David Glenn Isley, who I wrote this song with. And that to me is very important that people finally uh, accept that it's not the sponge singing, it's Dave. I think that I remember it correctly. I did sing this, if I do remember correctly. <laughs> You know, Mitch, it's an incredible story how a man who was a marine biologist, Stephen Hillenberg, turned himself into an empire by coming up with a simple idea of SpongeBob SquarePants and all those characters to affect not only children and kids, but generations of people. Hearing our song back in the day, he was inspired to write that episode around the song. Do you have any idea what an honor that is for Dave and I? that this genius picked our song and made this episode that lives 25 years later. The song itself is a miracle because yeah, I mean, we had no idea what we were doing when we did it. No, when, when Bob and I, you know, just, you know, to reiterate with some of that. And so from the very beginning, Bob and I met on a ball field, you know, and we started writing tunes together. He approached me about which was the murderer's row became the murderer's row thing. But in doing so, we started writing, just writing, you know, like, like guys do. They either do or they don't. They either have an affinity for each other or they, or they don't. And we did. And that song, or at least the sketch of that song, was one of several songs. And we looked at each other and we said, this is before anybody approached us or anything like that. We said, why don't we just, you know, why don't we write something that, you know, we both dig sports, we both play sports and why don't we write something in the competitive vein you know kind of musically sort of leaning towards a we are champions type thing now this is all preconceived we'd already been speaking about doing that and sketching something out so when we got approached or actually bob got approached by a friend who was a mutual friend of uh, uh neil portnow who now you know as you know, music cares and all that stuff. So this is way back when, when, when Neil was cutting his teeth and all this kind of stuff, the, somebody had asked Bob and I, if we had anything in the vein of that, well, we went, you know, we said, you know, we thought, well, yeah, we sort of, we might, you know, and then we went back to that sketch, which uh, was already, you know, on the, on the stove, so to speak. And that became Sweet Victory. And then when he heard it, we gave him a little cassette demo of it and let played it for him. And he, he and then somehow, some way, a couple of years later, without us even knowing it, and this is literally the truth, 
without us knowing this, a couple of years later, it showed up on, uh, on the cartoon and it was unannounced to us. We had no idea. My daughter ran into the room when she was a little kid. She ran and she went, dad, the sponge is singing and it's, yeah, I swear it's you. And it was yeah. like, Hmm, what? You know? And then, you know, and the rest is sort of history, you know? So, but that's where it actually came from. It was, it was, it was amidst a half a dozen other song sketches. It, it, and interestingly enough, if I could uh, interject, of course, that you yeah. know, the, we had no idea that something like this was even possible, let alone that it happened. And even without knowing that he wrote the episode around it at first, <laughs> the detail of the sponge of SpongeBob actually singing that with his head down and then raising his head to sing, it was chilling to me because it was so right on. Yeah, that yeah. it affected. Everybody by showing the stadium and those two guys in my kiss makeup, you know, crying and, and the response. Yeah. And at that time, you know, Bob and I both, you know, we were out playing arenas and doing stuff like that. And then to see, I mean, I had to start for, for years. I had to keep looking in the mirror and seeing if I was yellow or if I was flesh color. I didn't know who I was anymore. <laughs> I lost all identity. You know, it was crazy. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, years later, this this uh, this ridiculously huge petition was started prior to uh, 19, what, 18s, you know, in, in 2018 for the 19 uh, Super Bowl, you know, and it just exploded. And it was like the song. But at that point, Bob and I had already really decided we wanted to recut. We've basically recut the whole damn tune. You know, and uh, and that's what people are hearing now—the little short, little condensed version. That's this is all brand new, but very true to you know what we originally had done. We just recut it in the, with better mics. Yeah, and then and then adding the other elements and, that we've yeah. adding orchestration through uh, Duncan Sarah, yeah. right? My good friend from Balance. Um, yeah, the guy the guy conducted the Boston Pops. Yeah. Let Does me that ask tell you, you what the talent level is. Now, this new version that came out uh, to, to commemorate Stephen Hillenburg, who, who passed away at the mm -hmm. end of November 2018. So, this new version cool. came out. Now, did you change anything? I mean, I know you've you've re uh, imagined the song, but you know, Eric Singer of Kiss was on the original one drumming. Is he still on there drumming, or have you substituted no, all the instrumentation? No, we brought substituted everything. We brought in a couple other than Bob and I. Uh, I played some keys on it. Bob played bass on it. Doug played some additional keyboards on it, obviously, because he's a ridiculously brilliant orchestrator. We had a couple studio cats come in, one being a drummer. And, um, you know, we re rebooted the whole thing. It's all, I re-sang it, you know. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's a whole new deal, but it's totally in keeping with what we did originally, you know, as far as the song uh, content and the way we did it. I mean, I play, I sang basically as many followed the, I followed the map. Bob basically followed his map that we had already laid out and, uh, and we just did it. So sonically the whole thing would be a hundred percent, you know, better and, and more, you know, more, more modern access as well. It. Yeah. More modern and we could access it through via, you know, multi-tracks and, and be able to 
do whatever we wanted to do with it. We could turn it upside down, inside out, sideways, backwards and forwards, because we've got that technology now, which we didn't have in the very beginning. Yeah, this is the amazing thing uh, that we were talking about uh, in our other interview, Mitch, you know, the multi-tracks, just for your audience. Um, bands record each instrument will be on a separate track, and hence the term multi-tracks. Back in the day, it was an analog tape. We all know the image of the big reels that were put on. We've all seen the, the Beatles footage and all of that. But now, it's not that. It's Pro Tools yeah. and all yeah, of that stuff. All... And so yeah. the ability to move things around and tune stuff, I'm proud to say that that recording lived unedited and untuned because a singer of Dave's caliber doesn't need fixing like everybody today. He doesn't need fixing the way it used to be. What you sing is what you hear, not somebody pouring over it, fixing every note. Exactly. Now, now I could dress a little better. You could dress better. Now, I do want to ask David a little bit about his new album, of course, a Tattered, sure. Torn, and Worn. But before I get to that, and, and yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you were, of course, in Jafria, and there was two mm-hmm. albums that came out, and the albums had Chuck Wright, and you had Ken Mary, who had played with Alice Cooper, and, and Andy Johns, and it was just some great stuff. Um, but the third album, to this day, remains unreleased, correct? Jafria 3? Well, Jafria 3, I'll do it as short as I can. Jafria 3 actually um, is, in, in, in actuality, is, is, is I, on Frontiers, I released a record called The Lost Tapes. Now, in that, that compilation, would probably have made up, and those were all demos, may I say, those, those ended up, about half a dozen of those ended up on the first House of Lords record, okay? Those are things that Greg and I wrote. We ended up on the House of Lords record. There's some outtakes of Dirty White Boy on that record. Um, and but, but again, there was the quantity of stuff that Greg and I wrote that are on that Lost Tapes album or CD um, were surpassed the amount of songs we needed for the Jafria three record. So in actuality, the Jafria three record kind of lies in that lost tapes album of demos that were, they were done in, you know, in full blow studios, but they were done on a, you know, uh, over a course of like 12 songs in a day. You know, when we, Bob, you and I remember, we used to call them burn sessions where you just go in there and you would just blast through these things literally like live. And then at three o'clock in the morning, you'd start mixing them and, and hopefully have them mixed by nine over at Sound City or where have you, because you're going to get thrown out on your ear because somebody was getting you in there on, on some deal, you know, but uh, that's really where the third Jeffrey record lies is in my Lost Tapes album. And I only say my, because I'm the one who just compiled it all together, had all the wherewithal to put it together, and we and it was put out. Frontiers put it out. And it's still available. I mean, you can still find it. And if you can't, i got a box or whatever. You got, right, well, I'll have to get one for you. But, <laughs> but let me ask you, though, yeah. because... You know, you, you go out and you open for Foreigner on the uh, Agent Provocateur uh, tour back in 80, if 
85, I guess that was. 85. Right. 85 and, 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 and then everything, Perfect Strangers Tour for Deep Pearl. That's Deep right. Pearl so, and I was going to get to that. So, you, so you've, got, you've got these prime opening slots for Purple and for Foreigner. You've got the, the videos mm-hmm. are coming out. Where did it sort of take a left turn where the record company and the band and everybody just went, well, the hell with it, band over? Mm-hmm. What, what was the sort of the, the mistake? If I can, the mistake was I remember the town. We were we were in Birmingham, Alabama. We were opening for Foreigner. We'd already the Deep Purple tour was absolutely a nightmare, only because of I will a guitar player. I won't mention any names. It, it was just a very uncomfortable situation because with they based on Call to the Heart, they were expecting to get in kind of like a a semi Journey slash Eagles type of a band and it was hardly what we were so when we opened up in texas you know it was like uh a unnamed person kind of flipped his cork and said this is not what we expected because the place we you know we tore the place apart they, they, they loved it you know so anyway what happened was we jumped after we did purple we jumped to the foreigner tour and we were in birmingham and there was a whole to do all of a sudden we were never told and there was a whole video huge company back in those days everything was big and foreigner or somebody they were shooting our show they had the cranes going and the whole thing blah 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 and we later find out we're in the bar of the hotel and you know and everybody was a little bit out of their minds back in those days and uh the director of that video we were he got me got into it with with Greg and with a couple of people, we were, we were questioning him, like, what was all this? Why were you shooting us? And there was a whole argument ensued. And uh, something got back to um, the head of MCA at the time, which was not particularly a very good rock and roll record company to begin with. Um, and we were, we fell vic- victim to that. But anyway, um, this argument ensued. And that argument got back to uh, to Mr. Azoff at the same time that um, our second single was, you know, was being released. And that argument provoked Mr. Azoff to basically say, "Well, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to help this uh, help this single." So uh, he basically kind of unplugged the network, so to speak, at a very, you know, up unopportune time for us. So it's really kind of a mixed bag there because everybody was, like I said, a little bit out of their minds. They were, they didn't really know what they were saying to each other and, you know, bad news and, uh, unfiltered information that's not even actually accurate gets back to different power sources. And before you know it, there's animosity going on this, that, and the other, and boom, the next thing we know, we're headlining in Japan, and half the band is like saying, oh, God, we're ready to, we're going to jump jump ship. You know, Chuck was going back to Quiet Riot, and, uh, you know, uh, Goldie was, you know, going to go hook up with Ronnie. And that was like while we were gigging in, in Japan. The band was already going to have to re reboot itself for the second record which which we did you know so that was just an unfortunate time but it was and i'll say it i'll say it a lot i have no problem saying it at all it was a it was a horrible record company at that time for rock and roll 
you know, yeah. so and by the way, you're not the first. It wasn't meant to be. You're not the first one who's told me that MCA has been uh, its reputation over the years, and it matter that makes makes no difference who you talk to. They it was just they had no idea what to do with rock. They sort of got in no. on the train at the end, going, "Oh wow, we now have to develop rock bands because the sunset strips," and and it just it didn't work. But uh, I will ask you this, since you mentioned that there was this videotaping. Uh, what's the answer? They were they were Why were they taping it? They were taping our audience because what we were doing live and what we were doing out there is after about four, four would come on and after two or three songs, they were incredible. It was like they hit after hit tour, we used to call it. And we'd watch them for a few nights and then pretty soon it just became very, very low key and boring because they didn't really do much on stage. They just played these songs. And after we were done, the audience would get all but, you know, sedate until they got the jukebox era and they were shutting the set down and they were finishing, you know. Uh, so they were basically using the reactions of our audience for their video, for, for their video. And there was a whole big, because of that, there was this whole big argument in this bar back in Birmingham, and uh, and it became a, it became it became very ugly, and it got it got back to, to MCA. That were like, how dare you, you know, record our audience, you know, for them, you know. And I don't even have, know how accurate that was, but but there was a certain amount of accuracy to it because we witnessed it, we'd see it every night, you know. We, well, but. We, Place to go nuts, and then I they, get it, know. but but respectfully, you know, crowd swell as they call it in the industry. Whether it's a live album, whether you, you know whatever albums you want to talk about, people use NFL crowd swell, and they use this and that. It's it's sort of sure. an industry sure. standard to sort of cheat. Uh, but I, I will I will connect the dots here. You were opening for Foreigner. You have a new album out called Tatter, Torn, and Worn. It features drummer Ron Wixo, who, of course, played for Foreigner uh, for a couple of years in the 90s, 94, yeah. 95, 96-ish, something like that. Even yeah, played even plays on some unreleased... Here. Yeah, and he plays on some... And, uh, Raleigh. Richie Sambora. But, Richie Sambora's played a lot of people. A lot of people, yeah. And the uh, they recorded some demos with Foreigner in 96 that have never seen the light of day because... Lou Graham had his uh, brain incident or his head inch. Trying to say, I'm trying to say that respectfully, but he had a medical issue, and the demos and that session um, remain unreleased. I've heard them though; They're great stuff. But yeah, uh, Bob, we're not forgetting you, Bob. We're going to get back to you, but just quickly. No, no, this is all very interesting stuff. Good. It yeah, has some fascinating experiences, and I think the audience is going to love hearing about this. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to think that we've forgotten you, Bob. You're we're still there. But no, no, I'm listening intently. I'm Nobody listening forgets Bob. Nobody forgets. But I do Nobody. want to quickly talk about Tatter, Torn, and Warren because here you are. Yeah. You are making new music. Uh, it's a great it, record. It's, it's a great, a great record. Voice, well, thank you guys. Well, I've gone to. It has uh, its moments. It has a few moments. It has a few moments. Yeah. Well, you know what? Listen, I've gone to uh, um, not YouTube to Spotify. Hey, yo, hey, excuse me. Anything you sing has more than its moments, dude. Right. So just talk to me about no, this new you. album and, 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 and using Ron on drums, uh, who, of course, was in Foreigner. I like to say that. And Richie Sambor. And just let the fans know about the new album 
And other than Spotify, where can they get it? Uh, I, I believe it's at CD Baby, right? Where they can pick it up. Yeah, you can get it at CD Baby. You can get it at CD Baby. You can you, you you allegedly should be able to get it at Amazon, but they always say that they're sold out, which they may or may not be. I don't know because I keep getting reorders from CD Baby, so I don't know who's fulfilling, you know, um, uh, Amazon. But nevertheless, uh, that record came right on the heels of a very unfortunate situation. You know, when I got pulled back into the whole thing, I was semi-retired, you know, because I, I basically was, my daughter started acting back in 2008 and she was underage. And I, I basically had to be, I was on the onset. I was the onset fella, you know, that would take, you know, make sure she was okay and all this kind of stuff. So I basically took a hiatus for about five years until she was, you know, 18 um, and actually, you know, God bless him. You know, we've all, we all have our problems, but Goldie, you know, Craig, he kind of like, you know, he kind of he wrenched you. me out of the house. Yeah, yeah he did. He, he called me up and he basically did everything, but put a noose around my neck and dragged me out of the house and said, you're going to start playing again and singing because people want to hear it. So we, we, you know, we, cut a deal with, with frontiers and it was the, uh, um, the, uh, the, uh, the Isley uh, Goldie blood guts and games. Go- album. Yeah. The Isley Goldie. See? Yeah. And I know your career better than you. Debac- <laughs> Thank you. And it turned into a debacle. It was a very unfortunate, he was going through health issues, personal issues, just that and the other. So we never really got into the studio together. And it was really a hodgepodge where I was basically left you know, trying to just complete songs because there were, there were no songs written. So it was like, uh, it really kind of wrecked our relationship because, you know, he was, he just never showed up. He never came to the party and, uh, and it ended up in Italy in their lap to try to piece together this whole piecemeal thing. And, uh, it was a nightmare, but in that experience, I met, Paul Calder. Now, Paul was my, basically my partner and he's kind of like my, my partner here in LA, you know, he's an unknown hero for me. Anyhow, he's an like insane guitar player, but he's just the sweetest meat and potatoes guy. And, uh, he's, and he's a big fan, but he's an incredible musician. He's got his own band that, you know, play prog rock. That's insane. And I cut him loose on, on, on my thing, on the Tatter Tony Warren thing, and just said, well, you play a shitload better than I do, so uh, why don't you show me what you can do? And then he started playing a couple things, and I said, do another one, do another one. And he's an absolute techno whiz, so he's got, you know, full blow things that started off the whole record, started in my, my Pro Tools studio here in the house, and then I would just transfer it over to his place. He'd do all, you know, a lot of the stuff there. Then we'd bring it back here, and then we mixed it. And that song, I mean, that record, I'll end with this. That record is more of a purging for me, because uh, if you, above and beyond the music. That's a great word, the, purging. By the way, there word. you go. Could, could you say the album is a sweet victory for you? It was no. It was actually a a purging for me. Honestly, if you just pull the book out, don't even put the music on, and read the lyrics, you go. This guy's been. This guy's been gone through hell the last two years. 
You know, I mean, he's like uh, tattered, torn, and worn. And that is literally, you know, it was literally a quote while Paul and I were leaning on the desk doing the other thing with Goldie. And I just looked at him. I looked down and I just said, I am tattered, torn, and fucking worn. I'm burnt. And I, he looked at me, he just glanced up and he says, that sounds pretty cool. So I just jotted it down. <laughs> and that became the, that became the title of, of my record, which I jumped right back into the, got back on the roller coaster immediately. And he said, you got it. You got it right after this nightmare. You got to jump right back in and do your own thing. And, uh, and that's what happened. I wrote 25 songs and, a period of, I don't know, four months. And then, as you see, I squeezed 14 tunes on there, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I did because I had to get it out of my system. And that's what that record was all about. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 14 great songs. People definitely need to check it out. I, I have listened to it on Spotify, and I think it's a great... The, the voice is just... The voice is there, man. It's amazing. Um, before Thank we... You, absolutely. Before we wrap up, let me just ask Bob this real quick, because... Uh, you have been working with Graham Bonnet. You, of course, had done stuff with Blackthorn and Graham back in the day. Um, what is this new project with Graham? Is it a project? Is it a song? Is it two songs? Is it ten songs, uh, Bob? What, what are you up to? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, I've been blessed to be able to work with some of the greatest singers in the world, of which Dave is at the top of the list. And Graham Bonnet, no, top five. Ridiculous. This was an amazing singer, 70 years old. Uh, he came to Las Vegas with his band last year, and I got up and played a couple of songs with him. Standing next to him, he's so loud. It was incredible. I've worked with Meatloaf and people like that who were loud on stage. But Graham is like, it's just incredible for a guy weighing 160 pounds to project that much. Like Dave Isley, who, when he sings, you feel it. So uh, Graham asked me if I would do uh, contribute two songs to this new record. So Steve Vai is contributing some songs. A whole bunch of good people are going to be involved. And That's cool. Graham's had you didn't some tell me physical this, difficulties. Yeah. He's had some physical issues later, and yet he just finished the tour where, despite being in severe pain, went out and did his job. A real trooper, somebody who lives for the music. So we're going to be recording a couple of songs uh, actually next week here in Vegas uh, for his new record. I'm really excited about it. Um, obviously, Graham's got his own thing. I'm just guesting. Whereas Dave and I, we have some big plans for the future. Yeah, yeah, we got some serious stuff in up our sleeves, which we're really we're proud of. We're happy about, and uh, you know, I mean, it's like a, it was a big circle, but it was a full circle and. And here we are, you know, from the softball field in 1984 to uh, 2019, going into 20, and we're sitting on a, a, a total, you know, it's like uh, apocalypse now redo, redux, or whatever that word means. And here we are, and it's going to be, it's going to have a, it's it's grown into like a, a little three-headed monster now. Bob, me, and the song. And, uh, you know, and here we go. So I think 20 is going to be a real, real eye opener for, for us and for the fans of the song that were so damn disappointed, you know, at the Super yeah, Bowl I, you know, I, outcome. 
which was a nightmare. I mean, it was really a bummer for a lot of people, you know, and, uh, and that's, you know, it's what it was, but it disappointed and let a lot of people down. So, um, you know, there was no, nothing of our doing, but, uh, so we've just, uh, we learned a lot from that. We never realized what the song meant to so many people and how, how it touched them and how they grew up with it. And, you know, it's like, uh, we're not, I'm not trying to pin orchids on each other, but, uh, in itself, it is an iconic tune and, um, and it's going to be a classic when, when we're gone, it's still going to be being played, you know? So not to put ourselves in any parallel with, with Freddie and Brian, but um, it's it's without even meaning to to do it. It's it's like our version of you know we are the champions or we will rock you or for any kind of a you know any kind of an event. It's an event sort of song, and it's an uplifting song that it came straight from the heart and it came straight out of total honesty and and uh, you know without meaning to do anything. We were just two songwriters that just got together and wrote a half a dozen tunes, one of which happened to be what turned into that, the yeah. Sweet Victory. And it's a great song. We knew at the time, it, we knew at the time that the song was special. Yeah. But yeah. due to the circumstance, we were not in a band together. You know, uh, the, you know, how do we use this? We figured out how to use it. Because Stephen Hillenberg yeah. figured out how to use it. And that's why it was important to do that tribute, tribute to him right? on the anniversary of his passing. Oh, Not to sell it, but to give it away. Because Dave's voice and those lyrics are everything. Yep. That and tells the story. Right it, was a, it was a very touching tribute. And uh, I will finish on this, and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to, uh, to Dave just real quick. I've, o- I've always been curious to find out. You've had a successful... Uh, music career your 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 wife and and daughter have had uh, successful movie careers but you had wanted to be a professional baseball player is that the one thing that you look back and you just went oh if I could have just been a Yankee for one afternoon it would have made everything you know to be totally yeah to be totally honest with you Mitch I I sort of had one foot in there because I played double a with the San Francisco Giants that's right I was scouted by the Giants and I played about 18 months. Uh, I was a pitcher and I played strictly in the minors. I never got up to the big show or even close to it. But uh, that's only because after 18 months of putting up with this pitching coach, I wanted to kill the, the guy and I almost <laughs> did. So <laughs> I got let go. I got let go. I got my, my I got 80, you know, six out of the club. But uh, no, I played. I, I was actually on my way. I mean, I came up with, I don't, not, well, I'll age myself because everybody knows anyway. I came up in the same rookie leagues and scouting departments as Gary Maddox senior, Gary Matthews senior. We both, the three, we all played on the same rookie team, which was like up and down the coast of California and this, that, and the other. And uh, so I, I got a taste of it. So when I look back on it, you know, I remember being in there and during that 18 months, I was pretty, I was pretty miserable. You know, I, I, it was like, this isn't what it's all about. This is just totally a nightmare because everybody was like vying for their own, you know, especially pitchers, you know, they were, they were vying for their own, 
you know, self-worth and trying to get there. So it was like they didn't, it wasn't a teammate kind of a thing. It was everybody, you know, hedging for the every man for himself, every man for himself. Thank you, Bob. So it was like pitchers, man. They were like, you know, they'd have so many on the roster and you'd you'd be just trying to get a couple of innings in where you'd get to throw once a week. And, uh, and the other guy hated you. And he'd been sitting in that, in those minors for five years. And I was a young kid that had a high leg kick like Marischal. And so it was like, they just hated me the minute I showed up at training camp. You know, I could throw the ball, you know, like a BB, but, uh, you know, but See, the, the funny thing was, when I, I met Dave at the ballpark was I had no idea he was a ringer. So Pat Torby, <laughs> may he rest in peace, Chuck Wright, yeah. Robin Zander, John Perdell, Nuno Bencourt, uh, oh, oh, a yeah. whole bunch of Dave Amato, Ricky Phillips. The, yeah, the, the Sunday bums. The team with a bunch of jocks. So I'm playing with these guys, and I know they're all musicians. I know Dave's a singer. I hit a ball into center field, and I'm like, here's a home run for me. Dave takes the shortest route there possible, dives totally outstretched, and I look out there as I'm reaching second base, and the ball goes right in his glove. And I just stood there and took my hat off, and I was just like, how is that possible? And then I found I out that he... He plays real baseball, so I was like, yeah. "Oh my God, I actually know somebody who's got that kind of talent." He was, that's that how we met. He was in the Giants that organization. Hit. That that hit. So there you go. On on that, uh, we will. <laughs> that was a sweet victory for Dave, and of course, the song is a sweet victory for both of you. And uh, this yeah. interview is a sweet victory for me. It's a, it's a sweet victory all around. Oh, thank a lot you, of Mitch. victories everywhere. Uh, as thank we you, say, in, you're welcome. As we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. And uh, boy, both of you, when when the new albums in the 2020 and whatever you're doing comes out, let's let's do this again. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, my you're, friend. You're always the best, dude. Come on, you give really you are, you really great interviews, and you're passionate about the music, and that's the most important thing to me and Dave. Yep. It's all about the yeah, music. Cause... Thank you. Well, it's about Some the passion because it's certainly – it's not about the pay, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, join the club. Join the club, Mitch. I know. I know. Anyway, on that, I am going to go unstretch my back because it has completely locked on me. And uh, here we go. Merci, monsieur. CBD, Thank you, man. CBD. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and everything – and a leave. It's, it's my time to go get some leave. But thank you, folks. Uh, there you go. Merci. Thank you, Mitch. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.